Hello and welcome. I'm Brian Pace Braga, and you're listening to Building Business and Balance Conversations with BPB. I created this podcast for anyone looking for insight, mentorship, and guidance from someone who's been there and back again on the road to success. I'm so excited to bring the most brilliant thought leaders and friends on air with me to get real about what it means to build business and balance and how you define your own success. Building business and balance is back after such a busy summer launching my book, Eight. If you haven't ordered your copy yet, go to amazon.com and order it now. I'm honored to bring you this episode featuring one of the most humble, admirable, and selfless people I know. Emily Ann is a co-founder of Backpack Buddies, a non-for-profit organization helping fill the weekend hunger gap, a time when children go without the support of school breakfast and lunch programs. Emily Ann and her team provide meals and snacks across all of British Columbia for the weekend directly to those who are in need of them, reaching over 49,000 backpacks of food delivered last year. Take a listen as Emily shares her incredible insight on helping others and determining our own purpose. It, it, ha- it started, my mom called me one day and she's like, I had a conversation with an inner city outreach worker at this school and she said to me that they need food for kids on weekends. And it was just like, oh, of course, these kids who are relying on school meal programs Monday through Friday need to be supported on the weekends. And we looked around in the space and there was no groups feeding kids on weekends and it was like, all right, well, that's what we're going to do. We had no idea what we were doing or how to achieve it. But I remember that first Friday, we delivered these 20 bags to Grandview Elementary, dropping them off, talking to the teachers about what it meant, not just to them, but to the families and to the kids. And it was like, well, okay, I guess this is what I'm going to do for the next 60 years. <laughs> We've known each other for a long time, but for those of you that don't know you, what was, what was early years like for Emily Ann growing up? in Vancouver? They were good. They were like golden years, I would say. Um, I had such a wonderful childhood and was afforded so many opportunities. And I think when I look back at where I am today and like where this desire to do this kind of work comes from, it comes from those early years. You know, I was like greatly privileged in my life, but my parents always instilled in us looking out for other people and it's been you know we were my mom is a founding member of Canuck Place Children's Hospice which is the first freestanding children's hospice in North America back then it was the only place in the world it was super pioneering and I spent a lot of time there as a kid you know interacting with the families and just like how old how old approximately I would have been three or four when hospice opened and you know it's a place for terminally ill children. So that can be a very challenging place to be. But what that place, but what Canuck Place really does is it takes away the sadness of it. It is a place of joy and happiness. And it's where families go to get that reprieve from the doctors and the hospitals and all the challenges of their day-to-day life. And so there was so much joy for people that were going through such difficult things. And I was exposed to that at a, at a really young age. And, you know, it, it taught me, I think, about looking and looking for joy, even when you're in a hard time, like I might be right now in my own life. And so, you know, that that was a really kind of like formative experience, I would say, for me, definitely. So 
early years was family owning the Canucks and outside of just Canuck place, but going to games, you know, what was that like being, I guess, you know, around, I think it was around 94. You guys were, did you own oh, the yeah. team? In, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like I'm I remember thinking the back. 90, the 94 playoff run, there's photos of me in the suite. My entire face is painted as the logo, the, like the puck logo. <laughs> Shameless promoting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Those, I mean, it, it, it was very like charmed. I mean, we used to go to the gate, the the arena before games, and my brothers and I would literally play tag running around the rows in the arena. And I mean, who does that? Like, that's a child's dream. And you know, we mm. we the players and we we got to do such cool things and travel with the team. And it was really uh, it, like often looking back because I was so young, and you know, my dad sold the team when I was. 11 or 12, those early years kind of feel like a dream. I'm like, did that, was that yeah. really my life? Is that really <laughs> what we did on a Friday night? I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> what incredible memories. Yeah. You know, like, what incredible memories. And uh, yeah, I can't imagine because I remember the 94 run. I think we were, yeah, we would have been six. So yeah. yeah, seeing it from your eyes, what a cool what a cool experience. And then, um, so team gets sold. Uh, we actually, I think we started spending more time together when we worked at Starbucks. That was a few years later. So what were, what were kind of teenage years like for, for Emily Ann? What was Collingwood like? What were teenage years? What were your interests? Um, like was an idea of starting a charity one day, even a twinkle in your eye? Um, what kind of, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, school, I loved school. I was like very school spirit, rah, rah, student council. Like I loved that kind of thing. I liked being involved in that. And I definitely, I did a lot of that. And I also was really heavily into the service side of things. I went abroad um, to Thailand on a service project and I've done a lot of those kinds of things, which again, I think were super formative to wanting to do this kind of work. And I think I always knew that no matter what I did, it w needed to be in service to other people. So, you know, I thought a lot about being a lawyer, but like, I didn't want to be a corporate lawyer. I would, I wanted to go work at the Hague. I wanted to be like a humanitarian, right? Like a women's rights, like something that was in service to helping other people because I really believe that we are all on this planet to walk each other home. Like mm -hmm. that is our purpose here is to just help each other. Um, that is really beautiful to walk <laughs> each other home. Wow. Yeah. And nice. I think, I don't know. I think I've always sort of felt that nice. way. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that in you. I, I, there was, you know, yeah. You've always had a, a energy about you, a spirit about you that um yeah i i uh, i admire so um so we also uh ended up in university at the same time in the same place um at least for the year that i um stuck around um <laughs> before leaving um what was university like what was what was yeah it was again like I love, I loved school. I love learning. I loved the challenge of it, um, which it is a big challenge for me. So I've got three different learning disabilities. 
Um, I was told I wouldn't read, or my parents were told I wouldn't read past a grade five level. I wouldn't do math past probably a grade three level. Like this is what they were told when I was little. And so, you know, there's dyslexia and then two other learning disabilities kind of on top of that, that make learning really challenging. I have to work that much harder and I have to figure out different ways to do things um, to retain the information and to understand. But I was afforded a lot of assistance in school in order to help me build those skills. And so by the time I hit university, it was hard because of those underlying challenges I have, but God, I loved it. I just, I loved (laughs) the freedom of it. I loved what I was learning. I studied political science and just loved learning about all, all of it, all about different places in the world. I have focus on Middle Eastern politics and that Mm. in and of itself. I mean, you could spend a lifetime learning about the dynamics of that region and I, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. There, the a, the academic side was was hard, but the social side made up for it. <laughs> yeah, As you know, even just one year, it's the greatest. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it was it was too much fun for me. Um, <laughs> definitely got dis- distracted off of why I should have been there, or was supposed to be there, uh, and I wasn't mature enough. Definitely at the time to um, realize that. Okay, so you. Um, when was there, you, you talk about your early years, you know, of Canuck Place helping, but when, like, did you, when did you have like an aha moment where you felt like, you know what, I'm just going to lean into doing something in the non-for-profit space. Not that it was Backpack Buddies maybe yet, mm-hmm. or maybe that's how it transpired for you. You know, you saw a problem and then you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. How did, how did you know, coming out of a political science background, maybe being a high powered lawyer representing humanitarian issues around the world or to, you know what, I'm, I'm actually just going to lean into a, a non-for-profit myself. And how would you maybe coach someone or, you know, encourage someone to do that, that may be in a place of not feeling overly fulfilled or helping someone <laughs> each other walk, walk home as you so beautifully put, um, and if someone's feeling called for that. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I finished university and I went to work um, at a law firm. I'm like a fairly pragmatic person. So I was like, if I wanna be a lawyer and I wanna go to law school, I need to work in that environment to figure out if I actually think I might like it before I go and spend the money and the time to do that. So I left university, I got a job as a legal assistant at a like a small boutique firm in Vancouver. Um, and I hated it. Like I hated it. Uh, it just, and, and so how, how old were you at the time? 23 ish? No, not even 20, 21, 21. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and then this, I knew I was like, okay, well, and then I started thinking like, should I go be a teacher and help kids with learning disabilities? Cause I had amazing teachers help me through. I'm like, what am I going to do? And then this project with backpack buddies, it, it, ha- it started. My mom called me one day and she's like, I had a conversation with an inner city outreach worker at this school. And she said to me that they need food for kids on weekends. And it was just like, of course, these kids who are relying on school meal programs Monday through Friday need to be supported on the weekends. And we looked around in the space and there was no groups feeding kids on weekends. And it was like, all right, well, that's what we're going to do. We had no idea what we were doing or how to achieve it. But I remember that first Friday, we delivered these 20 bags to Grandview Elementary, dropping them off, 
talking to the teachers about what it meant, not just to them, but to the families and to the kids. And it was like, well, okay, I guess this is what I'm going to do for the next 60 years. <laughs> Left my job. Um, and- was it that clear? Was it that clear on that, you know, maybe rainy? What, 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 what did you feel like that day of 20 bags to Grandview? And when, when was it? What, what, do you remember what year it was? 2012, in the fall of 2012. So we're coming up on almost 10 years. Yeah. Okay. And was it that clear? Where it was like, this is a big problem? Yeah, I think so. I think it just like it felt right. It, I knew that it was what I what I wanted to do. And I, I always envisioned like or I dreamt that it could be my career and that it, it could mm. be what I would make my life doing. But I don't know that I actually believed that it could happen like it has to the scale <laughs> that it has. And it took me six years of working other full-time jobs and doing this full-time on the side in order for it to be successful enough to even take a salary. I mean, I remember my very first paycheck was a $500 a month stipend from Backpack Buddies. Like that, and that took six years to get to even earning that much money. So people thinking about <laughs> doing this kind of work, <laughs> but it's- Yeah, you, you, but you're playing the long game. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, definitely playing the long game. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so I, I, uh, you know, I think it's, there's parallels to some, some of the things that I've experienced. Um, when I was, when I was a stockbroker, my side job, which was actually earning me more of income than my stockbrokering job was at the time was club promoting, you know, and but I just had to make ends meet because I felt at the time that, um, you know, training myself as a stockbroker was the right thing. And I, and I think about another entrepreneur that um, we both know Julius from nude, you know, he, he pretty much had two roles as well for a couple of years before being able to actually properly lean into, to what he felt was his calling at the time. And I think that's such important advice or you know yeah just to like there's not this one perfect moment where backpack buddies forms and all of a sudden it's you know paying salaries to people is doing all these amazing more importantly doing all these amazing things it's actually so much sacrifice so and much. yeah <laughs> but um so can you can you walk me through some of those struggles in starting backpack buddies and you know, how you, how you and your mom and the team, how like you guys overcame them? Yeah. I mean, there's been such different stages of struggles. There's the early days where nobody understands why you're doing what you're doing. I mean, I honestly, for years, I would tell people about backpack buddies and they'd be like, that's so cute, but what's (laughs) your real job? And I guess really getting established as, um, like the go-to organization for this and building our reputation so that we have a name in the community. And with that name comes the ability to fundraise effectively, right? You have to build that and you have to, it's a challenging thing because you're doing this philanthropic type charitable work, but nobody understands it yet. Nobody has seen or heard of you, but you can't do it without people seeing you and understanding you and donating their dollars. So you've got to educate people about the problem and you've got to have people take a chance on you much like you did with us. Mm. Getting that trust from people is so- How many years does that take? 
Well, I would say we're in our ninth year. It took the fundraising was, and it will always be uh, an uphill battle, but it took until March of last year. Wow. I would say where, you know, we fundraised successfully and we're always doubling each year what we were raising. Um, and then this lovely little March of 2020 rolls around and things shift and something happened mm. in the community where people, um, people stopped and that their, their everyday lives were now impacted by something out of their control. And people felt very helpless and they, they wanted to help other people who were struggling and didn't know how to do that. And they looked to organizations locally that were doing that kind of work. And there was this opportunity and window for us to share our story and our message and our mission. And it really resonated with our community. And we did a lot of things that were uh, risky for the charity space, paid advertising, radio ads, digital marketing, stuff charities are told not to do. Don't spend donor dollars on that, but we did it. And the return was like unbelievable. Mm. Why are they told not to, why, why, why is that a no, no? How much time do we have? <laughs> we got a little bit of time. The, the charity space is, uh, first of all, I think that's the wrong name for it. I think it should be called the humanitarian sector. Mm. Um, the charity comes from the Puritans who immigrated to America. And when they arrived, they were very like self-interested individuals. So they're earning all of this money. Um, they're profiting off of the land. They're all, what happens is they're told by their religion to feel really bad about that. So what are they going to do? They're going to pass the hat in church and they're going to put money in. They're going to repent for their success. And that, that like construct in everybody's mind around like what charity is intended for has set this trajectory in people's minds of um, how donor dollars should be spent, that mm. organizations need to maintain a certain percentage of overhead, that it needs to be below 20%. And you can't take risks because if you take risk with donor dollars and they don't succeed, you're crucified for that. Um, you know, and what happens is we can attract good talent to the industry. This is Dan Pilota's thinking, who's like a very pioneering individual in this charity space. Um, what happens is people are better off foregoing this kind of work in this industry, going and using their skills in a for-profit business and then donating the money back to an organization. And then mm -hmm. they're labeled a philanthropist. You know what I'm saying? Yep. It's like very, um, and, and, and they're, and it's important. It's an important, um, dynamic to have these successful individuals who are supporting organizations like ours, but the logic of it is it's all backwards and we have to change it. And I'm very, mm. like, very passionate about, um, shifting the narrative around, how charities should function. I mean, you, we are told not to spend on advertising. We did this year and we got, for every $1 we invested in advertising, we raised 11. Wow. But 
we're all scared to take that risk because if it doesn't pay off and those were donor dollars, hard earned money that people put into your organization, you have to answer to that. You have to answer to that. Yeah. But like, um, I love how you call it humanitarian work. It's awesome. Um, I, uh, and I believe everyone can be a humanitarian in their own way. So I think that's nice charities. I think, harder because there's a there's a at least i think of it as you know giving dollars not everyone can give extra dollars but everyone can be a humanitarian and give their time um but i guess how totally yeah 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 so how um so you spend these dollars because i think of it like in the for-profit world so you know you have a return on your investment did you not you, you made a great return on your investment Um, is it because you had the right strategy around the marketing initiative? Like you had the right messaging, you kind of got people the right time. Does it have a lot of that almost for-profit mentality just applied to your organization, which just so happens to be an organization that, you know, gives away all of its profits or all of the, all of the contributions that donors make? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is, it's 100% thinking like a business and looking at what businesses are doing successfully uh, and how are people purchasing your product and how are you marketing it? And we're selling a product (laughs) that is, that's, um, that's what we're trying to do. And it's about storytelling. It's about what's compelling. It's about um, truthfulness with with what we do and like full transparency with our community about where every dollar that comes in goes. Um, and yeah, I mean, we had a great team come together um, sort of in the fall of 2019 that was sort of a PR um, and communications team that we spent money on. Because I yeah. know what I know, but I'm also very willing to admit what I don't know. And that is not what I know. So what I know is this work and the impacts and, you know, I know how to fundraise and, but I don't know how to convey that story effectively. So we hired people to do that. And that's another thing, charities, like we're told to keep overhead low. Don't be hiring staff here and there to do that work. But the value in that is so great. And that's a testament to this past year. You know, we were a $900,000 charity last year and today we're almost at $4 million annually. And that is, that's what you get when you invest in these business-like structures, in, in my opinion. And when you're doing something that people connect with. Yeah, so totally. Congratulations. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that is so awesome to hear. I'm so, I, I feel so much joy. That is so awesome. Well, I didn't so know that. part of it. Like, God, I, in I, those I, early I, days, Brian, like I remember sitting, <laughs> sitting across from you, like crying. I'm like, I'm so lost and I just want to do this work and I can't and I need your help. And well, actually, I didn't even say that. You said, what do you need? And you gave yeah, us God. a donation that made it possible for me to leave the work that was making me miserable to be able to start doing this. Like, that's what you did. And I wouldn't be here without that contribution and that belief and support from you so thanks you're very very <laughs> kind thank you it's you're, it's you're very kind it was it's an it's been an honor to witness and 
you know, I just, I, as I look at my life, like I believe in people and I believed in, in you and everything that you represented, I felt that you would do it. And um, you've just done it way bigger than I maybe would have ever thought, which is such a pleasant surprise. Yeah, me too. And not that, <laughs> yeah. And not that, and not that it's, not that I didn't, you know, I just didn't, I just thought, hey, this is maybe the right thing to do. And maybe that's a takeaway for, for even me as I say this, like, I found in my life that when you have hardworking, all these things, even though you have your learning challenges, a hardworking person, honest person, someone that represents truth, you know, the qualities that you endure, um, going for something and having the patience to see it through, which was, you know, in your own words, kind of nine years, eight, nine, eight or nine years later, um, you know, these are, these are not, these are qualities that you have, Emily, but maybe, you know, others listening to this, you know, these are the qualities that I continue to see in successful for-profit entrepreneurs. Um, and these are qualities that I believe we all have the ability to work on to, to have, and yes, it's maybe changing some current habits or, you know, sacrificing, you know, you sacrifice so much. You sacrifice probably a lot of personal life to work a job and build this. So I, I just hear so much, um, so many qualities of high performing people that are making a difference in whatever they're doing. Yours just happens to be an incredible, um, incredible place, which, you know, I do want to get to is, um, you know, where did it start in terms of how many children you were feeding and how many schools and the model that you created and envisioned and where is that today? And where do you maybe, where do you dream of it going given, you know, your dreams have been exceeded today and you where, where, where would you care to dream this could go? Yeah. Um, we started with that 20 bags that Friday afternoon. And today we're supporting over 4,000 kids every single week across our province. So that's uh, 34 communities in over 160 distribution locations. And those communities are, you know, Metro Vancouver, they're, you know, the lower hanging fruit that's like logistically very simple from our, our primary warehouse, you know the Tri-Cities, Surrey, Langley, Richmond, Abbotsford, that, that's, that's the easy part of this model. Uh, the challenging part is really remote communities. You know, we're in a place called Stewart, BC, which if you're not familiar, you can, you can walk into Alaska. Like it's that far north. So like, how do we get food there? And that's one of the things I love about this right now is um, figuring those things out because so many of these communities, because of their remoteness, they're often forgotten about. Agencies mm. like ours don't try to go there because the cost of operating is too high. The cost of food is too high. The barriers to entry are so great that, um, that organizations don't go and they don't have the capacity to. And that's where I'm like, bring it on. Let's figure mm. this out. Uh, and that's something my mom is very good at. I mean, she's built some incredible partnerships with transportation companies, for example, who 
that who go to these remote locations and they give us back of backspace of their trucks for free. We just piggyback with our product once a month. And, you know, that old adage where there's a will, there's a way is very true. And in terms of where I see it, see it going, there's a lot of talks about that right now. Um, mm. our, our short-term goal for this year is to get that 4,000 kids to 5,000 by December. Uh, and our long-term goal pro- province-wide is 10,000 kids a week. Uh, but we've Whoa. had a lot of discussions with other provinces. Um, totally different ball game when you go into a new province, different politics, different funding sources. Um, and it's the kind of thing where my mom is very much like, let's do it. And I'm very much like, well, let's, we need to think this through. They're <laughs> very like strategic. And, you know, her strategy, she's going to, hopefully she doesn't listen to this. I don't want her to hear me say this. But uh, it often works because she's just, she just yeah. commits. And then we've got to work backwards and figure it out. And you better yeah. believe once we've committed to supporting kids, like we're, we're not, we're not, not following through on that. And that's something I'm proud of to this day is that we've never committed to a school or a child and not shown up for them. And we show up every single week and they know they can depend on us. And um, that's very important to me. Wow. 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 Um, It's becoming quite a logistical business. God. Yeah. (laughs) We've got five trucks, four trucks, a fifth one coming um, on the road. Oh my gosh. Got three satellite warehouses. And I know when you came to our, our warehouse last April, I remember you saying like, this is amazing. And how great to see this big space. And that was our old warehouse. It was 1100 square feet. And today we're in almost 11,000. You should see this space, Brad, next time you're in town. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'd I love have an to come see with it. a door that I never dreamed of. Well deserved. That door for the first <laughs> time, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. How did Glad, we do- I, I, I let me go figure this out? Give me a minute. <laughs> let me go figure this out. I can just see you and your mom making magic. Well, something I do appreciate in your mom so much is she is she is Mrs. Possibility. It's like, you know, like why not? Just go for it. And, and yeah, it's also a very key, probably a really key partner for you to have in this because um as you said earlier, you're such a pragmatic person, you know, you approach it very pragmatically. And of course you've got grand ambitions, but maybe in ways she's um, not forced, but really forced, <laughs> maybe yes, forced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Growth in ways that I don't know, maybe you wouldn't have done at the same pace because you've just had to figure it out. Totally. It's so true. Like she adds bags and then I figure out how we're going to do it. And that's a great partnership. Okay. Well, it may be a question then in the, along these lines, working with family um, for those out there that, that have, or are thinking about it. Um, you know, how does, how is it? How, how would, yeah. If you're willing to kind of share um, real positives from it, some of the challenges and, and, how you've worked through maybe some of those challenges. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, my gut instinct is to say, don't do it. (laughs) 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 Which I I don't mean that, but like it it adds a whole other dynamic and layer to, to doing 
this kind of work. Um, but you're right. It, she pushes me and I push her in different ways to, to do mm. um, and to continue to do it. And there's no way I, I mean, I, I don't think at least that I would be doing this today in this capacity if it wasn't for her. And I think she feels the same mm. way. And so as much as we fight and as many challenges <laughs> as we have on a daily basis, it's, there are over the years, there are many instances where I'm like thinking to myself, why the heck am I doing this? What am mm. I for? Is it time to, to give up? Is it time to move on? And she would be the one that would be like, hell no, we've got to keep going. And then the reverse would happen where she was feeling flat and, and beat down by the challenges and the scariness of where our funding's coming from and sustainability. And, uh, and then I would be the one to say, Pull your panties up, Joge. We're going forward. <laughs> I mean, I love it. It sounds yeah. like actually, you know, a very like real partnership where that's you know life. You're 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 taking on big challenges, and you know my observation of you two is you're both very different people. But actually, if you can respect one another outside of some, some challenging moments and arguments and, but you get through it cause you've got a common purpose. What an amazing opportunity. And, and I, and I, I, I also think that, you know, what a, you've spent so much time with your mom. You know, I think about as I live in London and I just talked to her earlier today, cause actually it's, it's my, it was my dad's, it's my dad's birthday today and in, in heaven. But, um, uh, so I talked to my mom this morning and I just think, you know, what an incredible opportunity that you've chosen, but you get so much time with your mom. What like, that's so, what a beautiful experience for her too, you know? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're right. It's, uh, I mean, maybe it's a bit too much time sometimes, but it is <laughs> very, like I'm very fortunate and in that way. And I do think that we, we were worked, it was much more challenging for us in the early days where like, mm founding decisions of how we were going to operate we we could differ so greatly but today we're so on the same page about about most things and I think when I became a mother too my mm. perspective shifted and our relationship changed um whereas before I was very like it, I, I still am very independent but I was like I don't need my mom and then I became a mom and I'm like I need my mom like <laughs> <laughs> Oh, how things change. I wouldn't have yeah, said with my brother too, how, how, yeah, it's just like grandma, grandma's a big, a big role. Totally. Big yeah. role. Um, how do you, um, cause I'm on this journey and I've, and I've now written an entire book about it and I talk to people about it all the time and, um, I'm still trying to achieve balance myself and I definitely am more balanced than I've ever been and I and I continue to try to achieve balance how how do you how do you cope with what you take on your ambitions what you're operating now an 11,000 square foot you know um, factory of, of food coming to 4,000 kids going to 5,000 how does Emily Ann be mom how does Emily Ann be uh, wife how does Emily Ann be CEO um and how do you think about that? And, and maybe some advice to other people, females or males, um, that, you know, take on a lot. 
um, yeah. Yeah. I think balance is, in my perspective, I feel like the word balance is setting myself up for failure. Mm. And that I can't balance it all. And trying to balance it all will only make me feel inadequate or like I'm failing. So my perspective with it is that there are certain things that require balance at certain times. So maybe London is having a difficult time at home, my my daughter, and she's going Mm. through something emotional and maybe there's something really big happening at work. And so those are the things that I need to focus on balancing and I need to be extra present for her and I need to be very on at work. Uh, And then like maybe the personal physical activity side of things like that maybe I let that slip and fall out of balance a bit, but it's okay because I'm putting my focus on the things that need me the most. And then maybe I'm having a hard time and that, you know, meditation and physical activity is the thing that I need to show up the best I can each day. And so other areas fall out of balance, but like, it's not that they're out of balance is that they're not my priority right now. And it's about being able to identify what are the most important things. And if you you're dropping a ball somewhere, being kind to yourself about it because you can't do it all and you shouldn't have to do it all. And like, as women were put in that position a lot where people say, Oh, how do you do it all? And it's like, I don't, yes. Yeah. Like my mom came over the other day and she's like, you should have someone come once a week to clean this place. And I'm like, I, I do. And it feels <laughs> <like that. laughs> like, so I think I think what I'm hearing is it's it's more of a uh, for you you observers kind of you're recalibrating these different parts of your life where one might need just to get into quantifying it like over fifty percent of your attention but you like and then you got to just kind of dial back in other things because that's what requires it like obviously your priority your daughter um, so it's not ever like a I've got five important things in my life and it's. for each one to make up my, you know, hundred percent time. It's like one might need actually 90%. Yeah. 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 Okay. And that's, that's how I feel like at least, especially in this past year that I've been sort of like navigating through everything going on in the world and everything personally is really just listening to what it is that needs the most attention and giving that Mm -hmm. the most care and the most of my time and, and not being hard on myself if other things are quote unquote out of balance because that's just life and mm. yeah and and the pressure of gotta gotta take the pressure off we're just human <laughs> totally totally gotta laugh a little um okay so um how how does how how do you time how do you how do you manage your time so outside of balance, if, you know, taking on what you do, are there any things you find that have helped or you've found that have helped you in just time management? Yeah, I've, I set really firm boundaries with work in particular with my mom. I, you know, I'll look at my emails in the morning and if there's something that needs attention, I'll, I'll deal with it right then. But if everything can wait till I get to my desk, like I'm present with my daughter in the morning and that's the most important thing. And when I leave work again in the evening, if I know there's things or an email comes in that I have to deal with, I will, but those things that can wait, I make like, I, I, 
I don't feel that I used to, I used to be like, I have to deal with everything right away. And I've tried to really separate that uh, largely from feedback from my husband, who's like, you are working too much. You're on your phone too much. And so hearing that and trying to, to scale that back and even, yeah, with my mom, if I see her outside of work hours, she comes for dinner on the weekend or something uh, like, and it drives her nuts. I'm like, this is a no work talk zone. Yeah. Talking shop right now. It's mom time. It's mom, daughter, granddaughter time. This is family time. And nobody else wants to hear us talk about <laughs> what, we, what we, they're not that interested. <laughs> no, that's not true. So yeah, I, I think definitely. And I did something recently where I unfollowed every person on Instagram that I don't personally know. Nice. And that alone, like my Instagram feed has shrunk. There's less to see there. There's less comparison to people's lives that Mm. I don't know that can make you feel bad. You know, I've like tried to scale that back and that like kind of reduction in social media for my time management has been really helpful. Yeah, I've I've been off it for over a month now because I've been fortunate to have an incredible team member that's come on to really help me express my message, but by allowing me not to be on it. And I would also say it has freed up a lot of time and given me an opportunity to create more um, as opposed to, um, yeah, just spend time. So I, I agree. That's, that's great that you've found that also. I definitely have. Did you find with social media that you would look at like celebrities or people you didn't know? And there was like a level of comparison where you'd look at what they were doing or what they had or. I didn't know. I didn't feel that, but I, what I did feel my, my time was spent on social media um, was like not helping it wasn't helping me become who, you know, <laughs> I'll go really deep here. It wasn't helping me be in service to others. I don't think, I think it actually created more chaos in my mind as to like, you know, who more influencers, like who should I be like in terms of like a thought leader instead of just being myself? Like, should I be like Jay Shetty? Should I be like uh, Tony Robbins? You know, but actually I just want to spend time um, documenting what's helped me get to where I am. Um, Cause I do receive inbounds on those type of conversations. I don't have time to respond to, to, to everyone, but I want to help everyone as I can. So why don't I just pull back from all of that? So in, in your question of comparison, it's probably comparing where I should go with my, you know, my message and what I want to try to share. And I confused myself and actually became a, pretty big waste of time. And I think it caused chaos in what I actually wanted to share, which is just, you know, information from me and from my heart. And um, so I found my time relieve a lot. I think that something that social media does is um, it prevents at least, especially becoming a mom, I found it was really hard to um, like listen to my instinct on things because you're being inundated with what other people think, like how, yes, you your child, totally. how so when you're talking about like, which thought leaders do you want to be like, it's like, no, no, no. You want to be like you, but you can't totally. hear 
in the sound of everybody else. So you've got to shut that off so that you can listen to what you already know. You just can't hear it. Spot on. Spot on. Right? Yeah. Yep. And I've, and I, without knowing that well, beautifully articulated, I didn't know that as I came off. Yeah. Um, but I can definitely agree with everything you just said. And, and, but I'm in a fortunate position where, you know, I have the luxury of hiring someone that can do it. I don't know, you know, I'm in a, in a fortunate position. I don't know if everyone can, not everyone can do that, but can people take maybe time off or create, you know, very key word you bring up, which has been a big one for me in my life is creating boundaries. And whether you're creating boundaries with yourself or your relationship with your phone, your relationship with money or your relationship with loved ones, it's actually, yeah, just quieting everything down, whether it's through meditation or prayer or a walk in the park or, a, you know, what I miss a lot is uh, the North Shore Mountains in Vancouver. Um, but just quieting down, like, okay, well, actually, what is fueling me? And then what fuels me actually in turn is going to allow me to show up better for everyone and be more present and be healthier. And so... I think it actually just comes back to your point of boundaries and, and being okay with those boundaries changing as life evolves. But when you are in that commitment of boundaries, sticking to them, because as you stick to those boundaries, you just gain more trust within yourself. And, you know, yeah, I've, I've found it a, a, a nice journey to quiet things down. Yeah. And I think you got to get quiet before you can be loud. Like you just so true. You gotta, so true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that, um, thank you, Emily Ann, for uh, for your time. I'm sorry that I, uh, <laughs> I had to reschedule this a couple of times, but I wanted to be fully present for you and not suffering from a, clo- a cold, uh, and nor in the middle of a crazy frenetic day that I wouldn't have been able to be fully present for you. So um, thanks for being a little bit flexible with me. Oh, my pleasure. I, I totally get it. It's all good. Thanks for listening to Building Business and Balance with me, Brian Pacebrega. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and the wisdom of the guests I'm privileged to have met and worked with around the world. Subscribe to my series on iTunes for real, raw, and diverse discussions with thought leaders and pioneers on building business, balance, and defining your own success.